What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the programme today, Ukrainian voices on the future of their home nation. We'll hear from an MP, a geopolitical analyst and a cultural historian about the devastating war raged by their neighbour Russia, how it has changed the country and how they one day hope to bring the war to an end. As the war in Ukraine enters its bloodiest phase yet, there's no shortage of experts in the West holding forth on how best to bring peace to the region. But what did the Ukrainian people themselves think? For this episode, we gathered three prominent voices from Ukraine to discuss it. And we also put some audience questions to them too. Here's our host, journalist, broadcaster and academic, Philippa Thomas, with more. Hello and welcome to this event. This is dedicated to Ukrainian views on what is happening inside Ukraine and what the end game can or should be as the country continues to resist Russia's brutal invasion. All our speakers are Ukrainian or of Ukrainian heritage and all of them join us today from inside Ukraine. So let's find out a little more first about where they are uh, as they join us. Let's come first to Michael Bosakiu, writer, global affairs analyst, and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Michael, where are you now? Where were you when the invasion began? Good evening, and thank you for having me. I'm in Lviv, Ukraine, in the Western Ukrainian city that is very well known worldwide now, I think. And uh, when um, just before uh, the uh, hostilities commenced, I was actually in Kiev uh, doing commentary and analysis, and then I moved over to Lviv, hostilities started, and I've stayed here. But I have been back to Kiev, and I've gone as far as Chernihiv to see the... Um, frontline effect of the Russian aggression. Michael, looking forward to hearing much more from you. Olha Polyakovich, literary critic and associate professor at the Department of Literature of the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy. Olha, where are you joining us from today? Hello, everyone. Thank you, Filippo, for your introduction. Uh, during the first uh, days of war, I fled my uh, hometown uh, near Kiev, and now I'm in uh, Rivna region, uh, which is, is Western uh, Ukraine too. And Kira Rudik, Ukrainian MP, leader of the Holos, which is Voice Political Party. Kira, where are you joining us from? And tell us about the flags we can see standing proud behind you. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm joining you from Kyiv, and I'm proud to say that I have been here since the day one. I didn't live anywhere except for one day in Bucha and Gostomel. I remain with my constituency, and I uh, will uh, be here for as long as I am needed. Uh, actually, it's a funny thing about flags. So we have behind me the, the Ukrainian aims, right? We have Ukrainian flag, we have my party flag, Holos or Voice, we have European Union flag, and we have NATO flags. Uh, it all represents like why are we fighting and what we need to achieve. But the most important is these flags are covering my windows. And what you cannot see right now are actually the tapes on the windows. And I, uh, the, the, every window right now in any territory that can be hit by airstrike are actually covered with, uh, with tapes. Because if there will be a hit behind me, 
then I can be easily killed by the glass fractures. And so this wouldn't happen. I also have flag as additional protection. And I can tell you quickly right away that uh, just an hour ago, I was with my friend, a journalist uh, who was at the building, near the building that was recently hit by the Russian missile. And she only had uh, the, her windows taped uh, in only one of her rooms. And so because of the airstrike and because of the shockwave, uh, the rest of the glass was everywhere. And she actually hurt her legs. And it's a terrible, terrible situation. But uh, this is our new reality. We are taping our glasses everywhere because we know that it could save our lives. Thank you. It is your new reality. It reminds us how vulnerable you all are and the importance of the fact that you are speaking to us tonight from within Ukraine. And you'll not just be speaking to me, you'll be hearing uh, from audience members. I'll be able to bring questions to you. And so to explain to those who are joining us, tonight's event runs for about an hour. And for the first 40 minutes or so, I'll be talking to our guests, but I want to be taking your questions as well. And you can start asking them now. It's pretty easy. You just click on the ask question button that's at the bottom of your screen. Under the video screens, you type in your question. If you want us to say your name as well, if you want me to identify you, just put your name, type your name in the box as well, and then press send. And that's how your questions will come in. I'll remind you as well, partway through, and as we open this up in the last 20 minutes of the event. But let's come back to our guests now, because what I want to ask you first, and Kira, I'll come back to you first, to sum up for us how you have experienced this war? Um, you know, our previous president once told me that there is no Stanford in the world that would teach you how to be a president during a war time, how to be a member of parliament during a war time, how to be a parent during a war time. So we uh, are happy that we are alive. We are surprised that it's day 71 because I think nobody and even ourselves did not expect it to last for so long. We would have hoped for the quick victory and the world would have thought that we would lose quickly. Uh, we have, uh, our lives changed tremendously uh, and we had been traumatized to the level that cannot be reversed. When you're asking me of how are we doing, the most painful thing that I can tell you is that, you know, we all are coming from the generation of 90s. We all have lived through the revolutions, through the poverty, and we hoped that we will raise a generation of kids that wouldn't know all of that, that we would spoil them and they will build a new country uh, based on democracy and all the values that we, that we will uh, instill in them. And right now we fail those kids because now we have a generation of kids that know how to hide when there is an air raid siren. And we know who know and ask their parents, mommy, are we refugees? Who know to cover their ears and open their mouths when they, when they hear explosions? Who know all the atrocities of war? So this is how we are. Olha, your war, your experience of war, what do you most need us to understand from the outside about what you've been going through? Uh, yeah, um, what I found out, so um, uh, I was uh, researching uh, Ukrainian literature and uh, as you may, as you know, um, many writers um, uh, underwent World War II and when I was reading their stories, their memoirs, uh, of course, uh, I could uh, think that it's war is awful thing, but um, I could not imagine how it really is uh, until um, the full-scale uh, Russia-Ukraine war uh, started. And uh, during the first days of war, we've counted the days. So it's like uh, seventh days of war, eighth days, uh, 20, oh. and so on. And now we uh, stopped uh, uh, doing that. And it looks like, it, uh, like Kira said, uh, it's our new normal. Uh, I'm teaching online and I also want to say underline that uh, uh, my students uh, spent two years uh, online uh, during the pandemic. 
because of COVID-19 and, and now they are living through war. And of course, it's, it's very tough for them. But uh, when I see how my colleagues from Kharkiv uh, teaching uh, from uh, basements, from bomb shelters, uh, it gives me hope, uh, it gives me strength, and um, uh, I, I can feel uh, this uh, resistance, uh, and uh, it really gives us hope in these uh, desperate uh, times. Um, what we can do is just to continue what we are doing. Michael, your thoughts on yeah, being plunged into one extent existential crisis after the last one, as, as Olha was saying, you know, what particularly would you like us to understand from your point of view? Sure. Well, I, I view this um, as part of the war that started in 2014. This is kind of an extension, but of course, a much more violent one and on a much, much wider scale. But having spent a lot of time in eastern Ukraine in 2014 with the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission, including behind the front lines, I had seen firsthand the brutality of the Russian-backed thugs there. And um, the way they would shell populated centers uh, indiscriminately. But I have to say that um, in a recent trip I took to Chernihiv, where I saw um, the what what the Russian forces did, um, I've been to many violent places around the world, as I'm sure you have, uh, Gaza Strip, places like that. But nothing prepared me for that. I compared it, to, I described the scene that I saw. It was a residential community pounded consistently by Russian bombs. And we're talking 250 to 500 pound bombs right in the middle of communities. It was a mix of a wildfire, a hurricane, and a war on top of that. You had, um, we actually saw teddy bears, dolls, toys in those bomb craters. That's how close they hit shredded teddy bears. Um, today, if I can give you a couple of vignettes, I'm in, as I said, in uh, Lviv, uh, right on the edge of the old town. Nearby me is what they call the garrison church. Not a day goes by, except for maybe one or two days for Easter, where a, a funeral doesn't take place. There are military funerals there every day. Today was one, sometimes we have two, sometimes we have three young men um, in the church at the same time, their family is saying goodbye. I was there for one of them today. Uh, and just on the way to, to my flat here to talk to you, I passed by a, I would say, middle-aged serviceman in full uniform. He was on our park bench, just bent over twice, bawling his eyes out. Um, it looked like he had just come from the front line. But the, these um, friends have asked me, just to wrap this part up, friends have asked me what it's like to be here. And uh, I can't imagine what, you know, Olya and Kira and others who are from here go through, my roots are from here, but I was born in Canada, but it's very much like a roller coaster ride. You can be happy right now because it's spring and things are blooming, but it just plunges in an instant when you see those types of funerals happening or talk to people what they're going through. And Michael, the Russian President Vladimir Putin continues to insist, it's part of his rationale, that Russians and Ukrainians are brothers. Uh, com complete nonsense. Um, I had sensed in that uh, rambling 5,000-word essay that he released last year that he was preparing to invade Ukraine. And I said it consistently that uh, something's going to happen, and he did, because he has never got, got over the fact of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, we all knew that his uh, popularity was plummeting at home. Uh, perhaps this was a bit of a distraction. I don't think it was the only reason. And also, he's getting on in age, and I think he wants to create a legacy among his own circle, among his own people, of conquering Ukraine and, per and probably go even further as a matter of fact. I think his end game is to redraw the security infrastructure of Eastern Europe. Um, and that is one of the many reasons why the West has to do everything possible to give Ukraine the resources to push them back. And we'll come back to that about what the West needs yeah, to do. Sure. But Olha, I want to talk to you next about the sense of Ukrainian identity, because, well, I want to hear your thoughts on, on whether there was a sense of Russian-Ukrainian brotherhood, sisterhood, and what's happening now to that? Uh, yes, uh, it's uh, the myth of uh, Ukraine-Russia um, brotherhood or 
uh, fraternal peoples uh, is uh, is a part of uh, Russian propaganda right now, and uh, as you as you also yeah, that's air raid. We hear the the sirens and may hear them again during this hour. Olha. Uh, yeah, so I will continue if I may. Uh, and uh, it's it's a core narrative of their propaganda. And uh, what is interesting in this myth is that uh, uh, Ukraine uh, is a younger brother, uh, is a brother who uh, does not know what to do. And uh, the duty of uh, of uh, older brother or uh, big brother in Orwellian sense uh, is to uh, is to um, uh, explain uh, the way uh, how Ukraine should should act and uh, uh, just uh, using this myth uh, when um, Putin and uh, Russian army invaded uh, Ukrainian Donbass in 2014 uh, they said they wanted to protect Russian speaking populations there so to protect their brothers and uh, this myth of brotherhood was uh, used uh, uh, during uh, uh, since the beginning of uh, the war in 2014 to justify uh, Russian actions, uh, mil- Russian military aggression on Ukrainian territory. So, Kira, now there is there are many campaigns and movements to to pull down the statues, to think again about which which authors, which artists, which historic figures are revered within Ukraine. What do you feel about about that movement in your city, in Kyiv? It's happening now, isn't it? Bring down uh, the statues of of Russian figures. Well, I do support it because uh, my party is one of the initiators of that. You see, a couple of days ago, we had Boris Johnson talking to Ukrainian parliament online. It was a very important address because he said uh, a key thing to our people. He said, well, we were wrong. We should have acted in 2014 when the war started, when the actual war started. We really didn't think that we should act now, but we should have done that. And it was important not only for me, but for so many Ukrainians, because for eight years, we have been like talking to every single person we know, saying, look what is happening to our country. They attacking us from the east, they took the Crimea, and they would continue to move forward. And the feeling that we had was like being a victim of a rape when there is a full room of people and everybody is looking to the side. So Kira, I'm you, using this you analogy. and those other voices were right to say this is going yes. to be happening. Now Absolutely. that there is a brutal invasion underway, is your yeah. anger directed at Putin, at the Kremlin, or the entire Russian people? It is directed to the entire uh, Russian people, to the entire Russian culture. It is directed to everything that makes them think that we could be brothers. Everything that makes them think that we can continue or have like a similar future because they're using our past. This was mutual because we were in the Soviet Union as one of the reasons to come back and conquer us and take our land and kill our people. This is why I believe what we have not done for the last eight years, but we should do right now, is make sure that we uh, wipe out pro-Russian parties who are telling Putin that he could invade and people here would support him. Um, Moscow Patriarchy Church, which is working for Russians right now still, and everything that is related right now to our uh, any conjunction that we could have, starting with the street names and ending with the statues and uh, what is uh, written in children's book, etc. If we want to become European Union, and we do want to become European Union, uh, it was actually a vote that was uh, written in Ukrainian constitution in 2014, this is when the war started, that we want to be a part of European Union and NATO. And this is why Putin attacks us. So we need to become a um, world nation. We are already a world nation, but we need to make sure that we get rid of this path that is dragging right now us to this 
uh, atrocity, to this cruelty that is happening to us. And I do believe that right now is a time for it. Because we were very democratic, we were very slow, we were very open-minded and trying to be nice and taking care of everybody's opinion beforehand. Right now is the time to make sure that we cut all the evil out. And this is what we are going to do, and this is what we are doing, not only in Kyiv, but in other cities. So we have Michael uh, from Lviv. Michael, do you see any pro-Russian names left in Lviv? I don't, but you know, I would go one step further, if I can say, is that I would also weed out, uh, as part of the reconstruction redevelopment of Ukraine, the pro-Russian oligarchs who have been plundering relentlessly the economy that it's no longer a oligarch-dominated economy, and that it's no longer a media landscape where oligarchs dominate and run their media, their own media stations and their own self-interest. But no, a lot of changes have happened. And I think, you know, as much as there is almost a quarter of a million uh, migrants here in Lviv right now, many, many of them from the East, I think they're also realizing that, uh, well, number one, I mean, this place is known for its hospitality, but number two is I think a lot of them are, for example, starting to learn Ukrainian and learn more about Ukrainian culture from this part of the country. So uh, what my point here is, is that Putin indirectly has really boosted Ukrainian patriotism everywhere in Ukraine and uh, as well as, of course, support around the world. And Olha, I see you nodding at that about that, you know, Putin having had completely counterproductive uh, results there. Your thoughts on that, but also the idea of wiping out Russian culture and pro-Russian voices within Ukraine as an academic, as a literary academic. How do you feel about that? Uh, yeah, I completely agree uh, to Michael that uh, uh, Putin's uh, Russian uh, full-scale war uh, on Ukraine uh, just boosted Ukrainian identity and the sense of ourselves. And uh, we can see uh, now, for example, uh, uh, what Kira mentioned, uh, changing uh, names of streets, metro stations, uh, dismantling monuments. It's very, I think I regard it as a very positive process because historical uh, reconsideration should occur. Because what we see in Russia, uh, while uh, during the decommunization uh, since uh, 2015, right uh, after the Crimea annexation and uh, uh, start of the war in the Donbass area, uh, the monuments to Lenin were dismantled. Uh, in uh, uh, in the cities and towns uh, of Ukraine, uh, but what did Putin uh, just before uh, this invasion? Uh, he said that uh, Lenin uh, invented Ukraine. Uh, absolutely uh, absurd uh, and nonsense. Yeah, uh, claim, uh, and uh, you know it. It goes from um, they did not reconsider their history, their uh, cultural heritage, because uh, Russia never had truth and uh, reconciliation commission. Uh, on the contrary, uh, it, uh, it did many uh, crimes uh, towards Ukrainians in 20th century. And uh, these crimes, uh, they booster their imperial identity and they continue to uh, invade uh, other countries. I mean, it's not only about Ukraine, but we can think here about uh, Syria, Georgia, uh, Moldova. So it's it's uh, the part of their identity. And uh, coming back to, um, to Putin's claims that Lenin invented uh, Ukraine, uh, why uh, why Russian army uh, was so desperate uh, to capture Kiev? Why it ruined Chernihiv? Because uh, if you look at the history of these cities, Chernihiv in, and Kiev are much older cities uh, than Moscow. Uh, Moscow even did not exist when these cities were great uh, cultural, educational centers of the area. And without, uh, like this part, uh, uh, Russia is uh, less, uh, uh, less stronger, uh, less potent. And uh, a recon I, I, I mean, the reconsideration of uh, the past, uh, both historical and cultural, uh, is very important today because we we should not uh, we should not uh, um, forget that Ukraine was under the Soviet occupation almost for uh, almost 
uh, 20th century. And uh, it was imposed, like, why this uh, central metro station is called uh, Tolstoy station? I don't understand. It just as it is. So, Olha, yeah. let, me, let me pick up from your point. That's something I want to put to Michael. We're hearing your defiance, your anger, the resurgence of pride in Ukrainian identity, uh, sense of nationalism. So, Michael, let me ask you this first. How then does President Vladimir Zelensky get to the point where he negotiates with the Russians to bring peace to you all? Right. Uh, um, just as a prelude to that, um, what is happening right now, uh, for example, in places like Mariupol uh, and surrounding places, Kherson, is what the Russians are trying to do is continue that liquidation of Ukrainian culture uh, by, by, I saw with my own eyes in Shirio, bombing libraries, uh, replacing curriculum, introducing the ruble, uh, getting rid of the Ukrainian language. It's part of their active military strategy right now, and it's really important to point that out. Uh, they want to go to the part as far as by next Monday, May 9th, their so-called Victory Day, to have a parade in Mariupol, and they will do everything possible to make that happen. That's a very chilling thought. In terms of um, what can Mr. Zelensky do, I think he said to Fariad Zakaria, is I'm going to do whatever it takes to save lives. But um, it's a very sensitive topic in terms of where he goes with negotiations. I sense right now is the West is not pu pu pushing peace talks or negotiations. I think what the West is uh, encouraging Ukraine to do and backing it up with very lethal and high-tech weaponry is to push back the Russians as far as possible, possibly to the point of booting them out of illegally annexed uh, Crimea and Donetsk and then finishing them off as much as possible. As much as we may agree with that strategy, a fear of mine is the potential massive loss of lives in the meantime. So I think uh, everyone has to think about strategies very carefully. What would make a big difference right now, which would give Ukraine a huge upper hand, is what we heard right now. We heard those sirens, and it's very possible, in fact, extremely possible, that missiles are flying our way as we speak. They were here on Monday. Um, the only way to restore a sense of security among Ukrainians and, you know, more control over Ukrainian land is to give uh, Ukraine the technology, the weaponry, to be able to close its own skies, because the West clearly doesn't have the spine to do that on their own. President Zelensky has been begging for that. I mean, I, you know, there is that very high-tech Iron Dome system that has been used very effectively in Israel. Um, I don't know why that's not considered uh, for, for use here, but the West has to understand is that unless they're given that ability, this is how the Russians um, operate with per persistent brute force. Their artillery conquers and their infantry occupies. So we have to prevent that brute brute force from destroying uh, civilian lives and communities and um, infrastructure. Kira, brute force needs to be met with closed skies and more. So. First, on negotiation. I personally and my colleagues in the parliament, we do not believe in peaceful negotiations with Russia. You know why? Because we already had peaceful negotiations with Russia for eight years. And you know what the only thing was that Russia couldn't do? Step one, ceasefire. So right now the question is, if we have these peaceful negotiations, and if they end up at something, like who would be the person or the country or the unity of countries that would make sure that Putin keeps his word. And when I was talking to my fellows in the United Nations, I told them to look outside the building and see if there is a line of leaders uh, trying to get in and say, okay, let me, let me be the person who vouches for Putin. But we all know that this is not happening. And so right now, all peaceful negotiations discussions should start with the question, who would be the security guarantor for the Russia that they wouldn't break their word? Because we know, and we know that for sure, that they would break their word. Because right now, when there were those peaceful negotiations, and I'm quoting that, because while there were peaceful negotiations coming up, there were rapes in Bucha, 
There were atrocities in Chernihiv. My people were killed in Mariupol and throughout the countries. There has been missiles through all over the country and people continue to die. While Russia said, oh, we want the peaceful negotiations. This is the first point. The second point on how it could end. Uh, the, the only way for, is, is for us to win. Yeah, this is the truth. And we would need more weapons. We would need more sanctions from the West. And we would need more and more support, including financial support. Because no matter what we are talking about as an endgame, weakening Russia to the point that they wouldn't be able to continue, or Ukraine taking back all the territories and revolution in Russia, like what, whatever we are discussing, we know that it will be long term and it will uh, need to have a uh, combined effort. Because uh, you see how hard it is going even to weaken Russia out right now. You see how hard it is going to unite the democratic countries to impose more and more sanctions. You see how slowly mindsets change to give Ukraine the weapons that we need. It's been two months, two months of begging, crying, negotiating, knocking on all of the doors to let the countries that do have weapons that we need to give them to us. And you know what? These weapons are still in transit. So uh, right now, and I want to give you just this quick and very important example. Right now, the world is still in crisis. The first good crisis after the Second World War. And this crisis is, are we for the rules and democratic values and things that we all believe in? Or are we for the effectiveness and destroying evil when we see it? And I can tell you, in Ukrainian parliament, we have the same debate, the same question, because we have pro-Russian parties. And we all were, for, for a couple of years, we all were saying, oh, but they were democratically elected. They are also representatives of the people, so we cannot just push them out. Well, you know what? We have come to overcome this crisis. We know that we can, and we are pushing them out. I want to ask you a question, which I don't say lightly, because I am sitting safely at a desk in London. You are there with the air road sirens. You spoke about the children who are now having to live their lives, you know, knowing what to do when they hear the sirens, always fearing that their whole lives could be blasted in an instant. If the only way forward is for us to win, as you just said, those children may have to spend their teenage years, their young adulthoods in a state of war. The price is very high. The price would be even higher if these children will grow up and then they will have to face what I'm facing right now and what my colleagues are facing right now. The goal is not to make these children to have another war with Russia in five to 10 years. Do you know that, do you think that Russia will stop right now? If like, imagine that they like just went away. They will be collecting more and more gas and oil money. They will be still having this idea of rebuilding Russian empire or Soviet Union or whatever the hell they are rebuilding. And they will be just getting more and more forces to then throw it on somebody else. Look at their actions in Kazakhstan, in Georgia, in Belarus, uh, in, uh, previously in Finland, uh, in Ukraine. This country and this nation can only exist by, like, by expanding and hoping for this like, a greater idea of the imperialism. And for and this these is reasons, against of what we say. because of what you're saying, Kira, Michael, I want to put it to you, is this then a proxy war against Russia? Is this the West or the outside, not the entire outside world, you know, a, 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 large, a large coalition of global interests against Russia? Is that simply I, I, what we're seeing? Sure. Well, I used to call it that, but uh, now the Russians are now using that term of proxy war, so it's not very politically correct. But let's be clear is that Ukraine finds itself as a state, a nation, a fully-fledged nation in between Russia and NATO's uh, eastern flank. And um, that in the absence of Western boots on the ground here, the West is expecting Ukraine to fight this war. I do have to um, underline something, though, and it's something Kira said, which I agree with her 100%, is that I was with the OSCE in 2014-2015 when we negotiated successive so-called ceasefires with the Russian-backed uh, thugs, and not one of them held. And, you know, it was a really sad thing. It puts us in a sad, sad place as humanity, I think. Why? Because at least in places like Colombia, 
uh, in places like Myanmar sometimes even, you can negotiate for opposing forces put, to put down uh, their weapons for days of tranquility or vaccinations or things like that. They would do it, and you know they will do it. They, you know they will do it because um, they, they've made their, their pledges and um, their belief. But here you can't. And as Kira said, um, even in those humanitarian corridors, they, they are not respected. So um, the other thing here, quickly, is we're further in a bad place as humanity when tyrants, uh, dictators, totalitarian leaders don't know where red lines are. They don't know where the West red lines are. And I think that start that didn't start, but the Crimea was one. Uh, Af Afghanistan was another. The Syria chemical weapons, exactly. And Putin is that type of character, this twisted mind where he probes and probes and probes for soft tissue for as far until he, as far as he can go, and then and fights back. So the only thing people like him understand is brute force. Um, so this we are, as I said many times over the past forty-eight hours, we're in a very difficult. Um, uh, phase of the war right now, where a lot of uh, smart people have to get together and I think think this through, because just um, putting weapons, sending weapons here, I don't think will do the trick. A lot more is going to be needed, aside from also closing the skies to these uh, long-range uh, weapons that can go all the way from the Caspian Sea as far as here to near the Polish border. Olha, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the point Kira was making about, you know, if, if we don't sort it out once and for all now, Putin will come back, the Russians will come back, you know, it's happened, it'll happen again. In a sense, Ukraine being where it is and the richness of Ukraine makes it vulnerable. It's that idea of it being a prisoner of geography. So I completely agree with my colleagues, with Kira and uh, with Michael, that uh, uh, West uh, should do as much as possible, must do as much as possible uh, to help us to protect ourselves from Russian uh, military aggression, uh, giving us uh, high-tech modern uh, weapons, uh, uh, imposing more, more severe sanctions on Russia. And uh, it's true that we do not believe in agreements with Russia, because uh, if we think about uh, war uh, during uh, uh, 2014-2021, uh, uh, despite the Minsk agreements to seize the fire, uh, still 14,000 civilians and military were killed uh, in eastern Ukraine. Can you imagine this uh, number and how many IDPs uh, we have in Ukraine? Uh, broken families, uh, broken lives, uh, destroyed cities. And uh, it's just awful. Some of my students, uh, they uh, fled uh uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions in 2014, and now they are fleeing once more. So uh, it means that uh, Putin uh, and Russia, they just repeat the history. And if he won't win uh, now, uh, of course, he will come back. Uh, no doubt here. And uh, like, uh, yeah, Ukraine uh, is uh, coming back to your question to geography. Uh, it, it has a, a unique uh, position uh, between East and West. And uh, what we also were recalling uh, when the war just started, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, when Ukraine dropped its nuclear weapons in assurance for security on its territory from uh, Great Britain, from the US and from Russia and see what we have now. Uh, we cannot protect uh, ourselves. We do not have enough weapons. And that uh, what we uh, uh, urge West uh, to do to help us. Uh, but, but of course, we have hope and uh, we, sh we must win. We do not have uh, other, uh, other option. If I can bring in one of the questions, we've got quite a few questions coming in from our audience. Uh, and I just want to remind those of you who are with us now um, that uh, under the video screen, there is a, a section that says there's an ask a question button. And you can do just that. Type in your question, type in your name if you want to, and then press send. And we're watching the questions coming in. And when you say there is no other option, one of the uh, very heartfelt questions that has just come in, I want to read to you 
all, says, while I'm full of admiration for your courage and resilience, for your physical and spiritual resistance to the invading Russians, uh, I feel ambivalent. Uh, putting the rhetoric of defiance to one side, would it not on humanitarian grounds be better to save possibly tens of thousands of Ukrainian lives and surrender uh, places in the east, some of the eastern areas, at the, as they are inevitably going to fall to the Russian steamroller. I can imagine the emotion coming up in all of you at this point, but I just want you to 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 look at that question. Um, Kira, first, what do you want to say to that member of, of the audience? This is not the first time when these questions are asked. And it's all obviously very hard to answer them without like an extreme emotion. But if we are talking logic, um, the, per the people who have seen what happened in Bucha, people who have seen what happened in Mariupol, people who have seen what happened in temporary, temporarily occupied territories on the east that were under Russian's reign for the last eight years, they can say that we sh need and we would fight till the end. I can tell you about the... the kind of uh, peaceful uh, regions that were under temporary Russian occupation. For the eight years, uh, all the human rights were dismissed and disobeyed there. So people are living without the, the rule of law, without the um, respect to the basic democratic values uh, and their rights as humans. What happened, the atrocity that happens uh, on my, in my country right now, you probably have seen them on, on TV, uh, in, on the internet. You know what we are talking about. So how could one hope that if we give up those territories to Russia, that they would become uh, suddenly teddy bears and fluffy democratic people who would uh, say, okay, now we are done and let's put a democracy there. No, it will be terror and horror and death and destruction. And we are not giving up our people to that. Michael. Um, I have been arguing for the longest time that it's far better for the West to take decisive actions. Don't depend on um, sanctions that aren't working, but take decisive action to bring this to an end on the West terms rather than on Mr. Putin's terms. Because if it does not do that, and it hasn't done that yet, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives are at stake. Um, giving up those territories to to uh, the Russian side, well, we're seeing what that is like right now in real time. It's playing itself out. The Russian definition of evacuation of civilians from Mariupol is to put them through so filtration centers where they're harassed, tortured, uh, sent to Russia. The numbers are horrific, Philippa. If you listen to Mr. Zelensky, I think he threw out the number of about 500,000, uh, estimated 500,000 Ukrainians who have been forcibly deported to Russia. The Russians claim 1 million, although they don't call it forcible <laughs> deportation. So it's a very chilling thing. And of course, it brings back memories of the Soviet gulag of those times when people like me, when I was younger, we protested in front of Soviet embassies and, you know, for freedom of Ukraine and for an end of the liquidation of the church. So. It's a very chilling thing to see this playing out uh, right now. And again, I'll, I'll reference what I said earlier, what we saw with our own eyes in Russian-controlled Donetsk and Luhansk um, since 2014 of the indiscriminate bombing of basements that were run by the Russian thugs to torture, including journalists, into submission. Many, many others, uh, people who were identified as intellectuals, things like that. So it's a very brutal um, occupation that would await people who would find themselves there. I'm interested in finding out for you from you whether the idea of a partition to save lives is actually unthinkable. And Olga, I want to ask you not about your view, but whether there is even a debate about this among Ukrainians. Uh, oh, it's it's a very complicated uh, question, but um, uh, I would say... Um, Ukrainians are ready to protect uh, their uh, uh, independence, their freedom, and their um, their choice. Because uh, we did not invite anyone here to come to Ukraine uh, to, to kill our civilians, uh, to ruin our beautiful uh, cities. Uh, Ukraine is independent, sovereign, uh, European country. 
And uh, what I want uh, also to uh, to add, why the resistance is so powerful in Ukraine, uh, coming back to what Michael uh, has already said about uh, 20th century. Uh, you see, when I uh, I, he, I I read in the news that uh, Russians do not allow humanitarian corridors to resupply Mariupol and other uh, Ukrainian cities with food, uh, water, and medicine, and the child is dying because of dehydration. What I remember is the Holodomor or Great Famine of, of uh, 1933. When uh, four uh, millions or, or even more, it's, it's impossible to count, uh, were, uh, were uh, killed by hunger in those eastern regions of Ukraine. And uh, yeah, and uh, when I, uh, I see now this uh, illegal forced deportation, what I'm remembering is the forced deportation of Crimean Tatars during the World War II. And, uh, you know, and this now uh, emigration, when uh, uh, probably, you know, and Michael, who, who lives in, in Lviv uh, right now, that uh, how, how many Ukrainians uh, left the country? Uh, three millions, five millions. It's a large number. And we had it after World War II. Those who were decent, uh, who opposed the communist regime, uh, fled the country. And the Ukrainian diaspora is now one of the biggest in the world. Because of the uh, communist rule, because of the Soviet occupation of Ukraine in the 20th century, uh, that's why it's very important to continue our struggle. We, we are ready for that. Sorry, let me bring in Kira first on this. I want to, to ask as well about the sac huge sacrifices being made by people of Ukraine and inside Ukraine what Ukraine's allies should be prepared to sacrifice. There's a question just coming from Jane saying Ukraine's foreign minister has said any country that refuses to join the oil embargo against Russia is complicit in war crimes. And she says, isn't this a harsh judgment on governments that just want to keep energy supplies secure for their people? Kira, look uh, what we are dealing with right now. While Putin is committing atrocities in my country, killing people, uh, raping women and children, destroying and committing all the crimes on the crime and on the war crimes list. European countries continue paying uh, Russia for gas and oil a billion dollars a day, billion. So while we are talking with you today, like today the billion went, went into Russia. So he, Putin right now can't afford um, uh, not only war in Ukraine, but probably a couple of more wars and would be able to afford that. So you cannot be then saying on one hand, okay, we just want to be nice and stand for the democratic values at the same time. Because the idea that uh, all the democratic countries have is that uh, you cannot be attacking sovereign country, right? You cannot start the war because you want uh, to do so. So the question is, is the Western world ready to uh, made the sacrifice to stop the evil. And if not ready, then it's allowing this evil to go forward. I want to come back to an important point of Budapest Memorandum. In 1994, my country gave up on the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, which is uh, for the security guarantees from United Kingdom, United States, and Russia and for the guarantees of sovereignty and all that. And you see what's happening right now. So the question is, uh, what are the countries planning to do? Are they, do they want for this war, for these atrocities to continue and allow that to continue? Or do they want to stop that? And I don't think that there is a, there is a middle ground. All the ideas and illusions, there is a middle ground and you can be good and uh, on one hand and then support Russia by paying for their gas and oil on the other hand. It just cannot be true. It's the things that are um, contradict to each other. This is why if we want to end this war and make sure that it would not be repeated again, it needs to be a united front from all the European countries, United States, Canada, United Kingdom, on sanctions on Russia, not only coal, but oil and then gas. It needs to be a united effort on giving Ukraine the weapons that we need to fight. 
And our chunk in this is that the war with one of the largest aggressors in the world is happening on our land, and it's happening with our lives that are in stake. And if we lose, you know what the next question would be? It's Putin uh, continuing to rebuilding Russian empire. And then to he will go to Poland, to Baltic countries, and uh, so on. And if we are talking about that it could be a middle ground, then, uh, then give me an answer of what is the plan of those countries. Because I know the plan for my countries. We will be standing up and fighting. Many more questions coming in. And given that you just referenced the fact that Ukraine had uh, a hugely significant nuclear arsenal and gave it up, I want to put to you, Michael, this question. How does the panel rate the risk of a Russian nuclear attack? Um, it's, uh, I've actually been asked that on air a few times, and I have said that um, we, uh, we cannot underestimate Mr. Putin's um, actions, or intentions, rather. Um, he does keep that option on the table. You hear the nuclear saber-rattling saber of using nuclear weapons, but also uh, chemical or biological weapons. Uh, I think a more likely scenario will probably be chemical. And the way, because the reason, sorry, and the reason they would turn to those weapons is because they're not able to launch a full-scale deployment anymore of the Russian armed forces. But um, I think what they will probably do uh, in a act of desperation, and the West has to be ready for this, is probably strike a chemical facility. In fact, there's one right outside Donetsk that we've been um, talking about for many, many years, the Donetsk water filtration plant where there's a lot of chlorine. And we've always said a big fear of the OSC was if one of the inaccurate uh, Russian missiles hits that, you're going to have a huge disaster and lots of death on your hands. So they will uh, do that. And then you have perhaps plausible deniability. But that's that's their, their uh, way of operating. So um, that is why, I've, again, I've been arguing it's better to deal with this and end it sooner on our own terms rather than on Mr. Putin's terms, because we don't know what he would do with that twisted mind. Alha, another question that's just uh, come in to us uh, is, does the panel envisage a war of attrition lasting years, even decades? I'm having a little glitch here, but I'm hoping that you can hear me. Uh, so your thoughts first, Olha, on whether you're prepared to countenance a war of attrition that could last for many years. I would say that we don't have any illusions because uh, Russia is um, unfortunately our neighbor, and uh, we we know uh, we know our enemy at least a little uh, more than West. And uh, you know, uh, it's this question is uh, uh, for sure connected to the previous one. So uh, each day uh, I read about the death uh, of our soldiers uh, in my region where I live. So I'm in local news, and each time I see this news, I ask myself. Uh, what they died for. Uh, and it's impossible to stop now because uh, the price is very high. The very existence of this, this flag behind me is paid by the blood of my compatriots, by the blood of uh, soldiers, brave Ukrainian soldiers, uh, innocent civilians, including uh, children. And uh, we are ready uh, for different uh, scenarios. But uh, bringing back to this question about uh, nuclear terrorism, uh, so from the very first days of war, uh, Russians went to the Chernobyl uh, nuclear power plant, uh, terrorizing the whole world and then uh, shelling another power plant uh, in Ukraine. And you see, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, the world uh, know about great disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in 1986. Uh, and uh, it was uh, at the time when Ukraine was a part of the Russian world. We do not want to be the part of the Russian world, any uh, world anymore. Uh, we are an independent sovereign country and we are ready uh, to fight and to uh, protect ourselves as long as it's necessary. That point you make, we do not want to be part of the Russian world anymore. I'm hearing that from all of you loud and clear and know that you're speaking for many, many more. One of the questions that's just come in from Julia um, says, if Ukraine were to join the EU, 
so moving away definitively from that, that Russian sphere, would that not be another provocation for Mr. Putin to clamp down on Ukrainian freedom? Kira, you've got the EU flag behind you. I've got it here, uh, EU and NATO flags, because they represent the will of Ukrainian people. The will that we want to move towards the democratic values and away from the autocracy, that we want to move towards the future and all the uh, ideas that come with it, uh, against the past and rebuilding of whatever empire they are rebuilding. Uh, the, our ideas of free markets, free trades, liberal values, all these points, they are in this idea of joining EU. And we are, when we are talking about uh, provoking Putin on this or that, it's actually the same thing that my colleague said about the nuclear weapons. The West is so afraid uh, that Putin would, uh, uh, would launch nuclear weapons that they were um, delaying the weapons that should, uh, should have been coming to Ukraine. And right now saying, okay, we wouldn't do that not to provoke Putin. As a, as a member of parliament in the country that has been at war with Russia for eight years, I can tell you right away, there is no particular influence that the world could have on Putin or his plans. His plans are the, 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 uh, the, the plans, they are what they are. And he will be going with them. He is crazy. Nobody knows what's, what's in his mind. But we have this uh, fantastic saying in Ukrainian language. It says we have to do our own thing. And our own thing is joining EU as our people wish, making sure our country is strong with the international support, making sure that Russia is weakened out so that at some point they're out of their missiles, they're out of uh, uh, their weapons, they're out of ability to attack us, that they are concentrated on their internal problems rather than external problems, that they are in default. This is the things that we can control and we need to be concentrated. Putin can launch nuclear weapons, he can attack our nuclear plants, he can throw millions of soldiers into Ukraine, but it does not change of what we need to do. We need to do our own thing is getting stronger, moving with our direction and not having those hesitations, would we or would we not provoke him? Because in this matter, uh, the decision could be, okay, so not to provoke him, let's just like um, sit down quietly and hope for good. This is not how Ukrainians work. This is not how we are wired. We will be fighting. So stop we'll thinking about the way that President Putin might react. Stop worrying about whether you're provoking him. I have a question here I want to put to you, Michael, which is, is it even worth talking to him? The question is, people like President Macron, uh, are they right to maintain contact with Vladimir Putin? Or is there no point anymore? I mean, Michael, is there a point in terms of sending the message, at least, standing up? Um, I, I don't think so. You can do that through the Russian ambassador in Paris or wherever you come from. And I think it was a mistake. And I said it on air for uh, Peter Maurer, who I respect of the ISCRC, to go to Moscow, and as well as uh, uh, Secretary uh, Guterres, uh, Secretary General Guterres of the UN. Um, I think, um, you know, the problem a lot of Western leaders have, and my friend Michael Vatikiotis, I think, agrees with me on this, is that Western sanctions happen to be more of a tool for politicians to pat themselves on the back and said, oh, look, we've done something and we've got everyone together. But those sanctions against Russia are so uh, wide right now or thin, you could drive a truck through them. We have to get to a point where, as Kira said, there's a united front where the Gulf states... India, even China, um, are all together on the sanctions. We have to get to a point where if you're a Russian oligarch and you want to go, go on vacation, you basically have two options, perhaps. North Korea, Pyongyang, I hear, is nice in the summertime. Lots of, And then also those artificial islands that the Chinese are building, uh, illegally building in the uh, South China Sea. I hear it doesn't go below 35 Celsius there in the summertime. But... Um, that's where we have to get. But when I hear, and I have lots of friends in Turkey, and I respect, uh, you know, the country a lot. But when I hear them starting a separate airline to bring millions more Russian tourists to Turkey, um, that worries me a bit. And I'm worried again also about India's uh, non-alignment position when it comes to oil and energy stuff like that. Michael, my 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 television training is coming in, and that I I we are finishing. Yes. But I want to to quote something to all three of you. One of the points that's been made by a member of our audience, I think you need to hear. Um, she says, 
It's just a comment, not a question. I'm the granddaughter and daughter of war refugees from Central Europe who fled Soviet aggression after the Second World War. The suffering and horror so eloquently articulated by your guests continue to resonate in my family, generation to generation. It is uh, to despair to see history continue to repeat itself. We've heard so much from all of you that's been so powerful. You've talked about the only way is for us to win. There is no middle ground. The only thing he understands is brute force. We hear your determination. And it's been a real honor to be able to talk to the three of you uh, in this event for Intelligence Squared. So at that point, I have to say, with thanks for those who sent questions that I haven't been able to get in. My thanks to Michael Bosaku, to Olha Polichovic and Kira Rudik, to our audience, and also to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.